I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark uh, chapter 14 as we continue in our series in the Gospel of Mark. And, uh, you know, I know that when you came in this morning, you got one of these little communion cups and you wait, wait, is it March already? What? We do this on the first Sunday of the month normally. So what's, what's happening today? Well, when we get to the passage, uh, you'll understand we're talking about communion and uh, the beginning of communion, Jesus inaugurating, him instituting uh, communion that we share together. So what you're going to hear from me this morning is what I would like to say every time we take communion, but I don't have as much time as I have this morning. And so uh, I hope you'll take good notes and, and, and keep some of these things in mind. You know, when I grew up, um, the church that I grew up in, when I was not a Christian, uh, celebrated communion once a quarter. I didn't really care because I wasn't a believer. Uh, when I became a believer, I went to a church that celebrated communion every week. And I personally loved that. I, I loved being able to, to remember the Lord once a week uh, by taking communion. I personally love now the pace that we have in our church here at Claremont Emanuel when we take communion generally once a month. It's just always a, a special time. It, it keeps the freshness alive for me. I hope it does uh, for you as well. But you know what? Uh, Zach mentioned as we prayed, uh, the back on the back of your worship folder, the bottom, all of our brothers and sisters in Christ in these people groups that our missionaries have started all over the world. Uh, many of them will be having communion this morning. They have communion regularly. That unites us. Uh, we will one day be around the throne of God with our brothers and sisters in, uh, from Ateti and from the island of Biem and from Yembi Yembi and uh, Palakur, all the, the, the groups of people that are mentioned at the bottom of the worship folder, we will celebrate with them around the throne. What an amazing privilege we have to be able to do that. Um, you know, in every age, in every culture, uh, there uh, we develop ways of communicating, not just with our words, but with gestures and symbols. Um, last week for Valentine's Day, I'm sure many of you gave or received uh, cards or flowers or chocolates, uh, hugs or kisses, not just Hershey kisses, but kisses. And uh, those are all gestures. Those are all symbols that, that, we, that we use all the time. Many of us carry symbols with us daily. Um, if, if we are married uh, or if we want to find, if, if, uh, find out if someone is available, if we're single, we, what do we do? We look at their ring finger. We say, oh, this, this ring symbolizes marriage. It means that, and, and what we mean by that is that we're committed to this person. I, I love my husband or my wife, and I'm committed to them until death parts us. Um, some wear crosses. Uh, for some, that doesn't symbolize their faith, but for many, it does symbolize our faith. Someone in the first century would have been shocked to see us wearing crosses around our necks. It'd be like They'd be wearing a, 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 a guillotine around our necks. I mean, it's like, what is this symbol of death you're wearing around your neck? But for us as Christians, it has become a symbol of beauty. 
because the cross is, is the center of, of what we believe as, as Christians. It's important for us. Um, and think of all the ways that God has communicated his love to us through symbols or gestures or whatever through the Old Testament. Uh, even Noah, God wanted to express his love to Noah and his promise uh, following the flood to never flood the earth again. And so what does he do in Genesis 9? And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant. It's a symbol between me and the earth. Uh, when God wanted to demonstrate his glory, he asked the children of Israel to build a tabernacle. Um, when God wanted to show us how horrible sin was uh, and how much forgiveness costs, he told people to take uh, an unblemished lamb and, and sacrifice it in the tabernacle, kill it. Uh, and so uh, the people participated in that. They, they watched that, that happen, that sacrifice happen. They felt it, they smelled it. It was, it was very real to them. Uh, no one left the tabernacle thinking, well, I wonder what, what the price of sin really will cost. They knew it, they saw it. Um, so why does God give us all these symbols and signs and, and gestures? Well, the short answer is really because God loves us and he wants us to know him, not just to know about him, but to trust him, to, to really trust him with our lives. That's what God wants. And the disciples were, were unsure what was happening when they gathered for the last supper. They still had questions in their mind. They, they, did, they, they still didn't get it after all this time. Um, and, and Jesus is giving them what he wants them to remember. And, and he's giving them what is key for them to think about for the rest of their lives. That's, that's why this is such an important passage. You know, there were times in the Old Testament when, when the prophets just didn't have the right words to make their point. And so they opted for symbols. Uh, think of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 27. Jeremiah made a yoke and he wore it around to prophesy the Babylonian captivity. He wanted them to know what was happening. Uh, the prophet Hosea, you remember the story of Hosea, was asked to marry a prostitute who violated her obligations to her, to her husband, her marriage obligations. Why? To symbolize, it was a symbol to the people uh, of, of their unfaithfulness, why they were following a, a, a God that wasn't theirs and they were being unfaithful to the God they were married to. And Hosea demonstrated it in a powerful way. And one of the most important things that God told his people to do in Exodus was to celebrate the Passover supper. Uh, every year, the Jews in Israel would gather together in Jerusalem to celebrate with eating and, and drinking and telling stories and, and enacting rituals. And Jews still do this today. Uh, I grew up in a, in a community with many Jewish people, and many of my closest friends were Jewish. And I would be invited over, even before I became a Christian, to uh, friends' homes to celebrate a Passover meal. 
And it was not a meal that you just dig in and eat. Uh, I'll tell you, it was, it was something, it was a, a very ritualistic thing. You followed every single part of, of what was laid out for them. The entire meal followed a script, if you will. All that to say, think of all these symbols. Jesus' death was not an isolated event. It was building on this, all this Old Testament, uh, all these Old Testament accounts that we read about today. And, and so Jesus, as the ultimate prophet of Israel, is not do doing something out of the norm to take a, a, a very important event. And, and just like we've done today with the cross and give it new meaning. Um, and, and, and that's why he institutes this radical observance that he wants his followers, us included, to follow all of our lives. So on the top of your outline, you have this, that by historically linking the Passover and the Lord's Supper, Jesus is saying that what was so essential about the Passover must not be lost in the Lord's Supper. Both of them point ultimately to Jesus, who is the only and all-sufficient sacrifice for the sins of his people. The Passover pointed forward to Jesus, and the Lord's Supper points us back to Jesus. So Jesus, also on your outline there, Jesus combines words and symbols to maximize the communication of the most important truths for us to grasp. In other words, Jesus is saying, when I'm gone, for the rest of your lives, Here's what you're supposed to think about and meditate on. And, and I'm going to give you a, a, a way to do it so that you can remember me. I'm going to give you, we're going to talk about the bread. We're going to talk about the cup. And this is the, this is the, we call it the last supper. Uh, Jesus, because it was Jesus' last meal with his disciples. But we could also call it the first supper because it was the inaugural meal, if you will, of the new covenant. And on your outline again, the Passover meal that symbolized the delivery from Israel out of the land of Egypt was laid out before the disciples. And the Passover meal generally consisted of bitter herbs that represented Israel's bitter slavery, stewed fruit that by color and consistency represented the misery of making bricks for Pharaoh, and a roasted lamb that represented the lamb's blood applied to the doorposts and the, and the death angels passing over them as it destroyed the firstborn of Egypt. And so let's read the passage, starting at Mark 14, verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank from it. This is my blood of the, of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is God's word for us today. 
You know, it would be great to know all that Jesus said during the meal. Uh, We're assuming that this isn't all he said, but we do have the most important things that he said. Uh, These disciples were used to the traditions of the Jews and the practice of the Passover meal. This was not unusual for them. Uh, Verse 22 begins with the the words, while they were eating. And, And these following words of Jesus must have been shocking to them initially for this first meal together. Take it, this is my body. This represents my body. And in the cup in verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And so Jesus uses the bread and the cup and the words that he said with each of them in this most powerful communication. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that Jesus did all of this in in remembrance of himself. For us to remember him. And on your outline you have the remembrance is meant to communicate an understanding of the atonement. Of of Jesus dying in my place for my sins. That's the atonement. The Lord's table, if you will, is an acted out parable. that, That we get reminded of once a month and today. Um, and, and we should always keep in mind as we celebrate communion together, the, the, the value of what is happening here. So I want to talk about the symbols. So the first symbol is the, the bread. The mean, what's the meaning of the bread? So verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples saying, take it. This is my body. Jesus was not speaking literally. Uh, but figuratively. So, so what does the figure mean? What, does, what is he symbolizing here? Very simply, and again, it's on your outline. The bread refers to the life of Christ. To the life of Christ. It's in John 6.35 when Jesus says, I am the bread of life and whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Jesus, like the bread, is God's life sustaining provision for you and for me. He sustains us like like bread, representing all food, sustains us. By calling himself the bread of life, Jesus was teaching his disciples and us that he alone is the true source of our life. Both in this world and in the world to come. We need Jesus. Bread can go bad. We've all seen moldy bread. What do we do? We throw it away. Bread can become moldy. As the bread of life, Jesus never perishes. He never spoils. He never runs out. We have a constant supply of Jesus in the bread. That's what it represents. Uh, The incarnation, uh, uh, again, you've got it on your outline at Bethlehem, which literally means the city of bread. Christ, the bread of life, took on a human body. We need to think about that. That's what he wants us to think about is his human body. And so it's it's one of the benefits of the, the meaning of the bread. And this is on your outline is that our partaking of the bread symbolizes our very real participation in his life. So, so think about what Jesus did in his body. He demonstrated to the world that he was God by living a sinless life in his body. 
he bore our sins on the cross while he was in that body. Jesus triumphed over the grave, bringing his body back to life. And even now, he lives in that glorified body at the right hand of the Father, where he prays for us. He ever lives to make intercession for you at the right hand of the Father. And as Christians now, we are members of his body. And we share that body life together. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, is it not the bread that we break? Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body life of Christ? This is the body life that we have as as Christians. We are part of the body of Christ. And so through the bread, we see Jesus' incarnation and his death and his resurrection life. And this all happened in his body. And if we are genuine believers, we will all partake in that body life. This is what the bread means to us. And another earthly benefit of the bread is that, and this is on your outline, that the bread also means that we participate in each other's lives. We've already alluded to that. We're part of the body of Christ. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17, because there is one loaf, Christ, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. And so, uh, again, on the outline, the Lord's table promotes the fellowship or the communion that we have together as believers. And so this life-giving bread is, is not just an announcement of who Jesus really is, but it's, it's, it's an invitation for us to participate in each other's lives in Christ. That's what true fellowship is. And and we know that on a certain level on a Sunday morning as we wonderfully gather together and corporately worship God. But the only way to know that, and so in a sense, we're sitting shoulder to shoulder this morning as we worship God together. But there's also a very important part of this fellowship and communion where we need to be in a smaller group where we face one another. And, and we share with one another. We, we, we pray for one another. We, we study God's word together in a smaller group. And, and so if, if you're not in a small group, we talk about this all the time. We have plenty of opportunities for you to get involved in a smaller group. And, and, and experience more of that body life together. Paul is very clear that communion, that the communion, the act of taking communion is for believers only. However, when an unbeliever is present and when we take communion, uh, what we have in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, we want to make them hungry for Jesus. We want them to see our, our how, how does Jesus say by your, by, uh, that, that people will know we're believers? By our love for each other. They'll know that we're believers. And so they hopefully will become hungry for Jesus as they see that, as they see our love exercised for one another. Paul and the leaders of the, of the early church encouraged this deeper level of fellowship. Over and over again, you've got a group of verses that begin with Colossians 3.16. Teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. 
This is how we do that, how we experience body life. Encourage one another. Encourage one another and build each other up. Warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, encourage one another daily. Spur one another on to love and good works. Don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another. How many times is encourage there? It's like a half a dozen times. Encourage each other. You know, the Last Supper is called by different names, and each name emphasizes a nuance of what we're doing. We we call it communion, um, because through it we commune with God, we commune with other believers. We call it the Lord's Supper because it celebrates this Passover meal that Jesus ate with his disciples. It was the Lord's Supper. Uh, Verse 23 says, then he took the cup and when he had given thanks. So Jesus gave thanks. The word thanks, the Greek word for thanks is Eucharisto. Does that sound familiar? Have any of you ever heard communion called the Eucharist? It's the giving of thanks. Um, And we're, we're thanking God for his work in Christ for us. You know, just think about this, just hours, this is where we're at in, in, this, in this account of Jesus' life. Hours before he goes to the cross, he's thanking God for what's to come. He's thanking God knowing what he came to do. He's, he's giving praise to God. That's what's most important to him. And that's what needs to be most important to us. He came to save us from from fear, from guilt. He came to save us from depression and sadness. All of those things, you you imagine somebody on their way to the cross would have felt all of those, not the guilt, but fear and and depression, sadness. But but what, what turns that around? What turns it around for us? Thanksgiving. Giving thanks. Giving thanks is what precedes the miracle. What happens right before Lazarus is raised from the dead? Says Jesus looks to his father and he gives thanks. And then there's the miracle of of Lazarus rising from the dead. The the root word of Eucharisto is the word charis, which in Greek means grace. And so the heart of of thanksgiving is what we all need in our lives is the grace of God. And you know what the root word of grace is? Just car is joy. So you want to experience true joy in life? Give thanks. We, We don't give thanks in God for necessarily every circumstance, but we give thanks to God in the circumstance, in the situation we're in. Augustine said that the goal of of everyone is truly deep joy. He argues that. Deep joy is found only, think about this, in, in, in Eucharisto, in giving thanks for the grace of God in our lives. At the root of, of knowing God's joy is Eucharisto, is thankfulness. One author said that that Eucharisto, that includes these three words, thanksgiving, grace, and joy, gives meaning to everything. Why? Because in that we see Jesus. 
and what he gave, the, the, the way we, we know the grace of God. And so taking communion, communion is, is the central symbol of the Christian life. And, and central to that is the giving of thanks. So let the taking of communion for all of us, every time we take communion, be a reset of our lives to be able to give thanks to God for, for what we, where we're at right now. And it may be messy. It may be hard. But he wants to come right in the middle of our mess and allow us to experience his grace and his joy. And then we look at the meaning of the cup. What does it mean when Jesus says in verse 24, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Jesus is expanding here on the meaning of the cup. So the red color of the wine obviously represents the atoning blood of Jesus, sacrificed for you. And on the cross, Jesus fulfilled the old covenant, established a new covenant. And it was poured out for many. So why the many? It's an allusion to Isaiah 53 that speaks of the Messiah as the one who would pour out his life unto death in Isaiah 53 verse 12. The animal sacrifices of the old covenant had to happen time after time after time. Uh, if you go to Israel, you can see troughs where the blood flowed. There was so much blood. The new covenant was accomplished, and this is on your outline, once and for all. Once and for all. By Jesus' sacrifice for us. The new covenant did what the old covenant could never do. It could never take away the penalty of sin forever. It could never cleanse the heart. It could never cleanse the conscience of the believer. And in the prophet Jeremiah, he predicted the coming of the new covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 31. Well, that could be a whole sermon in itself. But, but it's there. And Jesus' death was a, was a violent death. But his blood was the blood of a new covenant shed once and for all, never to have to be shed again. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 11, in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. It represents the new covenant. That's what we're remembering in Exodus 24, the old covenant law was celebrated by the shedding of sacrificial blood. It's Jesus' blood that guaranteed by the new covenant why we are saved. That's, that's, it, it celebrates our salvation. And so when Jesus got up to bless the food that night, you know, there was one thing that's different. I, and we assume that there, the meal was on the table, but it never says that. And I think that, that's, that struck me when I looked at that. And there's no lamb on the table. It never says in any of the Gospels that anything except the bread and the wine. Maybe they'd finished it all. But, but the, main, the, the main course, we don't see it being there. And that struck me. Why wasn't there lamb on? Why didn't they say there was lamb on the table? And you've got this on your outline. There was no lamb on the table, I think, because the lamb of God was at the table. 
Jesus was the main course. That's the reason John the Baptist saw Jesus coming. And in John chapter 1, he says, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why would John call a person a lamb? You know, we might call a baby sweet as a little lamb or something like that. But we don't call a person a lamb. Because Isaiah did. In Isaiah 53... Isaiah predicts the coming of the suffering servant. And when Jesus says in verse 24, my, this is my blood poured out, he's identifying with the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He's saying, in essence, I'm the one that Isaiah spoke of. I, the suffering servant is me. I am the lamb of God to which all the other lambs who've been sacrificed point. They point to me. Jesus' blood seals the new covenant by which all of us, men, women, children, are saved. And how are we saved? By resting our faith in the sacrifice of the blood. By the grace of God. Isaiah says in verse 7, Isaiah 53, 7, that he would be led like a lamb to the slaughter. Jesus' blood seals the new covenant. And then look at verse 23. He gave it to them and they all drank from it. Well, we know from John's gospel that Judas was gone. He was not here at that time. So it's Jesus and the 11 disciples. But the all, I think, underlines the unity, not just of the disciples that were present, but of us today. Like I said at the beginning, it's what unites us with all the, the, the churches that our missionaries have planted all around the world. It unites us with them. I, I love the way John Calvin uh, describes communion. He says it like this. You've got the quote on the outline. The godly ought by all means to keep this rule. Whenever they see the symbols, the bread, the wine, to think and be persuaded that the truth, the truth of the gospel is surely present there. For why should the Lord put in your hand the symbol of his blood except to assure you of a true participation in it? Wow. We're participating in this together. In other words, we take the cup and, and we benefit most when we have this cup in our hands by saying in our hearts, yes, I really am forgiven. Thank you, Father. I confess my sins before you. If there's any sin that I need to specifically confess, Lord, bring it to my mind that I can confess it. But I need to confess my sin. But, but most of all, I'm praising God for his forgiveness in Jesus. That's what this represents. So that's the meaning of the juice. Meaning of the bread. So what? What does it mean to us? Uh, let's look then, number three, at the mandate of the bread in the cup. What's the command? What's the obligation that we have now that, we're, now that we understand the symbolism of it? Well, it's by the Holy Spirit that a believer communes with God. 
uh, as well as with other believers. It's the Holy Spirit in you and in me that unite us together. Uh, it brings us as a church. And, and, and the reality of these symbols so powerfully portrays, well, uh, uh, it makes the, of these very challenging words for us. It, it, it takes us back to the depth of our belief. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, in what we call the bread discourse in John chapter 6, I, I, I can't read this without thinking that Jesus has in mind this Last Supper. He knows what, what this Last Supper will be. And so he writes in John chapter 6. You can turn there in your, in your Bibles if you want. John chapter 6. I'm going to read from uh, verse six, uh, chapter 6 beginning at verse 53. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Wow. Jesus, of course, is speaking figuratively but about belief. And, you know, St. Augustine has this interesting quote. He, he says, believe and you have eaten. And he's talking about symbolically eating of the, the blood and the flesh of Christ and drinking it. It's, it's part of it. We're in him now. We remain in him. Jesus said to all of his disciples in Matthew 23, you have only one master and you are all brothers what, you, what, what, what unites us? It's the blood of Christ. It's the body of Christ. And just as the disciples were fellow students, we are now fellow worshipers together. And the phrase, whoever eats my flesh, is really interesting in the Greek. It's, it's a noisy eating. It's eating with your mouth open. It's a rude eating. It's, it's noisy eating. It's munching. It's crunching. And the idea is that it's truly partaking of Christ. In other words, having eternal life is, is a real partaking of him through faith. And that's best understood by, by eating and, and by drinking, which represents the body and the blood. We, we, we're meditating on him. It's like a, kind of like a cow chewing its cud. It, we just keep meditating on Jesus. And we must truly feed on Christ or there is no life. And here's the point. It's on your outline. Jesus should be as real to us spiritually as something we can eat. He's the basis of our nourishment. Is Jesus that real to you? I hope so, because I know that in the world, there are a lot of people who might call themselves Christians, and that's not, this isn't real to them at all. The metaphor of, of the bread and the wine tells us that, again, it's on your outline, that Jesus is absolutely indispensable. Absolutely indispensable for us. We think of the bread as a basic staple of life. 
Spiritually, it's impossible to live without Christ. He is our bread. In other words, he's our all. He's our everything. He is our fundamental need. Uh, Dr. Charles Malik uh, was from uh, Lebanon, and he at one, one time was the uh, Secretary General of the United Nations. A Christian, very committed Christian. And he spoke at Wheaton College one time, and he said this. If you've got it on your outline, I can live without food, without drink, without sleep, without air, but I cannot live without Jesus. Maybe that quote sounds funny. What does he mean by that? But what he's saying is that to live means to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's true life. It's, it's to feast on Christ. That's true life. That's how we know the grace of God. And when we die physically, what did Jesus say in, in John chapter 11? You will live even though you die. <clears throat> That's why he calls himself the resurrection and the life. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with him still. And this is what the church believes. This is what we believe. And this is what we want to communicate to those who are not yet believers. That they need Christ for abundant life, for eternal life. And so through the establishing of the Lord's Supper, this living parable, we have the Lord's table that declares the following. And, and you've got it on your, on your outline. That our sin... Uh, apart from the redemptive blood of Christ, we're lost and eternally separated from God. Sin distorts the image of God in us. We need forgiveness. And our faith that we believe that in the death and resurrection and exaltation and bodily return of Christ, that's, that's the core of what we believe. And our dependence on him. He became sin for us. So that we could become the righteousness of God in him. So that when, when God looks at us, he sees Christ. Because of the Holy Spirit being present in our lives. He doesn't see us, doesn't see our sin. And then our dependence on, on him. And, and so uh, really this, these truths are, are refocusing our hearts on what really matters. Our hope. That Jesus' words are certainly true in verse 25. I tell you the truth. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. This is what we need to know. We need to know that no matter how discouraged you are right now about whatever is going on in your life, no matter how messy your life is right now, what we're experiencing as the body of Christ, this is just a foretaste of heaven. These are like the hors d'oeuvres to the main meal that's coming. All the, the high points here. In, in the midst of the messiness, in the midst of all the discouragement and everything that else is, that's going on. All the greatest longing of our hearts are going to be satisfied when we sit down with Jesus at this great meal in heaven. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we should hear God say to us, no matter how awful your life feels right now, I am unconditionally committed to you. Hased love. A covenant love that God has for us. It's not about your performance. 
Jesus says to you, it's about mine. How was his performance? It was perfect. It was perfect on your behalf. And so he will bring me to heaven, not based on my performance, but based on his performance, which is perfect. I will bring you to heaven, Jesus says, on my performance, not yours. No one can snatch you out of my hands, out of my father's hands. Jesus is anticipating this messianic banquet when the Passover fellowship with us, his children, will be renewed in the kingdom of God. So it's a loving remembrance. That's what we celebrate. I just want to end with this. You know, <clears throat> National Geographic, <clears throat> some, some years ago, about a terrible forest fire. They sent forest rangers in to look at the fire and see the damage. They saw this little bird. And, and it was kind of frozen in an upright position. It kind of freaked one of the forest rangers out. And so he just kind of knocked it over. And out from under this bird came three chicks. It's like, wow, this is amazing. This is, it was because this, this mother bird was willing to die. Those under the cover of her wings would live. And Jesus says this in Luke, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how I've wanted to gather your children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing. And that's exactly what Jesus did. In a sense, in a sense, he was, he was burned to a crisp for us. On the cross, you don't have a bloodthirsty God. You have the son of God coming himself to love us. Jesus took our penalty on himself. Our sins fell on him. He got what we deserve. Our guilt fell on him, our brokenness. He took it on himself so we could be forgiven. And so Paul says these words in 1 Corinthians 10. It's not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a participation, a communion in the blood of Christ. And is not the bread that we break in participation of the one body of Christ because there is one loaf. We who are many are one body <clears throat> for we all partake of the one loaf. And so you have this on the outline. This is, this is where, it, what it means to us. This is, it should do a few things in us. And, and as we read these, I want you to take your cup because we're gonna have communion in response to this. We humble ourselves before God. We remind ourselves that we're forgiven. We, we express our unity as we do this. We encourage ourselves. We're recommitting our lives to Christ. And then, you know, it says in verse 26, they sung a hymn as they went out. <clears throat> and then they, they went out after they sang the hymn. And it was probably because of, <clears throat> because of what was going on, because they were celebrating Passover it was because of the, it was the natural outgrowth of, uh, it was the, the Psalms, the Hillel Psalms, Psalm 115 to 118 probably. And we don't know exactly what was sung, but in Psalm 118, we read this. <clears throat> Imagine Jesus walking into the garden of Gethsemane, having just sung these words. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Jesus is on his way to his death. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. 
So take the bread in your hand. For I received from the Lord, Paul says, what I pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this. Eat this. Eat this. Chew on it. Let's do that now. And remember him. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. Saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. can't think of a more perfect response than to have shared communion together this morning with you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that as we have taken this supper together and been reminded of what it means and remembered your death, Father, that you would reshape our lives on the basis of your dying love. We ask that you would help us because of your substitutionary, sacrificial love for us. That we would be able to to turn around and give this kind of sacrificial love to others within our body, outside of our body. Please help us, Lord, renew us through this supper. We pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Now, uh, may the God of peace equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you, through the power of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen.